All right. If you got your Bibles, go to John chapter 6. We're going to be in John 6, 1 through 21. And uh, there's a clip that I want to show you um, that I thought was pretty funny this week. So uh, hopefully it's going to go up. But this was on Jeopardy last week, and I'd like to get your reaction. All right. Biopics 200, please. In a beautiful day in the neighborhood, beloved children's TV show host, Mr. Rogers, is played by this beloved actor. The film opens Friday. That's Tom Hanks. You are kidding me! <laughs> you are kidding me! What? They didn't... They didn't even have any wrongs, you know. So they said they got Bing, uh, Woody Harrelson? No. <laughs> they were stunned. Uh, Bing, no. Uh, Mahershala Ali, no. I'm sorry. That's wrong. What was the name of the category? Washed up career choices for Bad, bad. Okay, so um, I think this kind of illustrates what the sermon is about this morning. Um, I, I've mentioned before that Tom Hanks is actually, if you do a survey, is the most trusted person in the United States. Tom Hanks is the most trusted person in the United States because none of the Democrats trust Republicans, none of the Republicans trust Democrats. Nobody trusts anybody, but everybody loves Tom Hanks except for those three brilliant Jeopardy contestants. They didn't know who he was. Uh, they didn't know who he was. Um, and that's because in that clip, he looked a lot like someone else. He looked a lot like someone else. And this morning, we're going to see this question confront us. And do you have, that is, do you have any idea who Jesus is? Do you have any idea who Jesus is? Um, if you do need a Bible, raise your hand, John 6. Uh, we can get you a Bible. Just slip your hand up. You can go to your app. And in John 6, 1 through 21, we're going to see this question confronted to the people in the text, the, in the story. And that question is going to confront us. This is the big question that's going to confront us this morning. Do you have any idea who Jesus is? Do you have any idea who Jesus is? And here, here's, here's the thing. The Gospel of John was written as a biography of Jesus by a man named John who knew Jesus as a teenager in his early 20s and saw Jesus do all the things that Jesus did and then ministered and gave his life for Jesus over decades and decades and decades. And then at the end of his life, when he was like in his 80s, he wrote down a biography. He wrote the story of Jesus, his friend, his Lord, the man he had walked with and had seen his glory and seen his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. He wrote this story down in something we now call the Gospel of John or the book of John. And when he wrote this story, there was this question that he was confronted with, and it was this same question. Do you have any idea who Jesus is? This is one of the themes of the entire biography, the entire Gospel of John. Look at this very beginning of chapter 1. We see uh, in John 1, 10 and 11, says that Jesus, the Word, was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Everybody should have known who he was, just like those Jeopardy contestants should have known who Tom Hanks is. Everybody knows who Tom Hanks is, but they didn't know. And, and th th we're going to see again this principle play out in the lives of the people Jesus interacts with through two very famous stories. As we get into the text, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Jesus is God, and he provides for and protects his people. That's the main 
think? Do you have any idea who Jesus is? That's the question. And here's, I'm giving you the answer up front. Jesus is God and he provides for and protects his people. Jesus is God and he provides for and protects his people. Let's pray and we'll just get into this and see what God wants to show us. Our Father in heaven, will you help us to see what's right in front of us, to see the face of Christ. As 2 Corinthians says, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to see that Jesus is God and he provides for and protects his people. Help me to say what you want me to say. Help me not to say anything I shouldn't say. Pray your Holy Spirit would have freedom to edit me and to just open the hearts of those who are hearing here to hear. They're here to hear your word. Not, they're not here to hear a person. They're here to hear God. They're here to hear you speak through your word by the Spirit. And so I pray that you would and you would meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Under this large question of do you have any idea who Jesus is, there are two sub-questions in this passage, and this is the first one. Where do we get what we need? Where do we get what we need? This is the first 15 verses of John are going to confront us with this question. Where do we get what we need? I already gave you the answer, all right? But let's, build, let's pretend like there's a little bit of suspense here because this is what the narrative is building toward. After this, after what? Well, after John 5, okay, so... It's not too complicated. After John 5, and he has this confrontation with the Pharisees and the Jews after he heals the man by the pool of Bethsaida. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, in the northern part of Israel. to the, And so he's going from the western side in where Capernaum is and all, all that, and he's going to the eastern side on the other side, what would have been typically outside the, the promised land. And it's called Tiberius because one of the, the rulers had built a city there called Tiberius. And so John is cluing in his readers where this was, kind of giving them geographical uh, clues. And, and he says, it says in verse 2, a huge crowd was following him. A huge crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. This is, this is really what it means to be a Christian. It means to be someone who follows Jesus, who follows Jesus, someone who goes where Jesus goes, who walks behind Jesus as he leads. But we're going to see in the passage as we get through chapter 6 this week and next time that it's not just the beginning of following Jesus, but it's persevering in following Jesus. Not just following Jesus part of the way, but following Jesus the whole way. And we're going to see there's, there's a, a, diver, a divergence, there's a separation that happens in, in this story for people who begin to follow him but don't fully recognize him. They were seeing the signs, and so they were following. And, and I think this is so often what happens in the life of people who call themselves Christians. They see, they see, they see what Jesus can do, and they seek him for what he can do. They follow him for what he can do rather than seeing and seeking him for who he is. Now, those things, you can't separate those things. But there's a difference between seeking Jesus and seeking the Lord merely for what he can do for you compared to who he is with you. 
It's important to know that you can't just follow after Jesus for what he can do for you. You have to, that, that is a big part of it, but that's not the whole thing. You have to follow him for who he is. And that's the confrontation we see in this passage. We see in verse 4 that it was near the, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 3, Jesus uh, went up to the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. So he gets out of town, he goes away. He needed, this is a retreat for Jesus. This is Jesus taking, it's an offsite for him and his, his team, right? And they're going away and they're going up on the mountain and they're spending some time recuperating and re- renewing and recreating. And, and we, we see that Jesus needed this, the disciples needed this, we need this. And it's just a pattern of, of, of rest in, built into the creation. On the seventh day, God rested, a pattern of rest built into our lives. We're not designed to work every day, all day. We're designed to take a breath and to pause. We see Jesus, though, in this case, doesn't get the break that they need. He doesn't get the break he needs because it was the Passover, verse 4, a Jewish festival which was near. And we're going to see why that's important as we get through into the rest of chapter 6, where he's going to tie in the meaning of Passover to himself. But that's just kind of a cue when, when this was. And we see in verse 5, so Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. Notice what it says, Jesus looked up and noticed or saw this huge crowd coming toward him. Raised his eyes, literally it says he raised his eyes and saw the crowd. Um, and so we're going to talk this morning about seeing Jesus and the crowd seeing Jesus. But we see the, the true need is not for the crowd to see Jesus, but for Jesus to see the crowd. The true need is not for you to see Jesus, but for Jesus to see you. And the good news is, is that he does see you. He sees you. He sees you. He, raise, he sees you and he knows exactly what you need. And in this case, he knows what the crowd needs. And he puts this question to Philip. Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? This is strange. That Why does he single out Philip? Why does he single out Philip? And why does he ask the question in this way? Well, we're going to see in a minute why. Well, who was Philip? Who was Philip? Well, Philip was a man who specifically was found by Jesus in John 1. John 1, 43, it says Jesus found Philip and that Philip was from the town of Andrew and Peter and that Philip was a man who believed in Jesus and went his fa- friend, found his friend named Nathaniel and said, I found the Messiah, come and see him. In John 1, this, this first story is in John 1, 43 through 46. And, and we see Philip later on, he hangs out with Andrew a lot. And that, that's interesting because here we're going to see Andrew show up in just a minute. He hangs out with Andrew a lot. And, and in, in chapter 12, he and Andrew a, a, ask Jesus on behalf of the Greeks if they can see Jesus. And then in chapter 14, we see that Philip is the one who says, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you all this time and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So we see Philip is, is, is kind of singled out in the story at a few points. And here, Jesus singles Philip out. And he does this, verse 6, to test him. He does this to test him. It's interesting, in Jesus' question, he assumes responsibility for the crowd. He assumes responsibility for the crowd, and he assumes that it's his disciples' responsibility to 
feed the crowd as well. He says, it's our responsibility. They're coming for us, and it's our responsibility to feed this crowd. And he says he said this to test him. Now, I I thought a lot about this this week, because this is a strange thing, because why would Jesus do this? Why is Jesus testing Philip? What does it mean that he's testing Philip? And I went through and I looked at all sorts of examples of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where it says God tested his people. We see, we see, I think, two in particular, two in particular. So um, this first one in Exodus 16, 4, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them. Why? To see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And so we see testing here in the context of God's provision of raining bread from heaven or what was called manna. He's going to rain bread from heaven and, and God says, I'm going to test them to see if they'll obey me, if they'll trust me. Look, and then again in Deuteronomy uh, 8, 16 through 19, Moses is telling the people, he fed you in the wilderness with manna, notice, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble you and test you. So that you, in the end, he might cause you to prosper. You may have say, say to yourself, my own power, my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant. He swore to your fathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, I testify you will perish. So what's the point of testing here? The point of testing is humbling and getting a realistic appraisal of who we are in light of who God is. Tests reveal what's truly in our hearts and reveal what we truly believe and shape us then into the people we're supposed to be. So some of you know that I uh, teach classes at a couple of uh, Bible colleges and seminaries here in South Florida, extension centers. And one of the things I really believe in is I believe in testing. I believe in testing. I believe that tests make you learn. Tests make you learn. And so the way I do it is I'll give a midterm, I'll give a final. I write up the midterm and the final, and we review the week before everything for the final or the midterm. We go over it question by question. I tell them exactly what's going to be on the test. No surprises. Exact why? Because I want them to actually learn it. And so we review it, and then they study it, and then they take the test. And in the process, uh, scientific studies have shown the, pro- the, the, the act of trying to remember something actually causes you to remember it even more. So if you're ever trying to like memorize something, try to make yourself remember it before you give yourself the answer. If you're trying to memorize scripture, try to, whatever it may be. And so they take the test, and then they stress for a week or two. And then we go back over the test, and they review the test. And then if it's a midterm, they review the material again for the final. Because testing is not just a matter of putting people on the spot so that they can be stressed out. It's a matter of shaping and educating. And so when, when, when God says that he's testing the people, he says to humble them. Why? So they'll know that everything they have comes from God. So um, if we could go back to the slide, two slides back with the John not, uh, 6 on it. So when it says he t- he said this to Philip to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. He's doing this to make Philip understand and to bring out to the surface what Philip truly believes. And so when you're going through something in your life that's a test or a difficulty or something, what God is doing is he is surfacing 
for you, God already knows, okay? God doesn't need to know what's in your heart. He knows what's in your heart. He's doing it for you to see what's in your heart. And you see, oh my goodness, I actually don't believe what I thought I believed. I don't actually trust God like I thought I trust God. Why? Because when money's tight, I get really short with my kids. Because when this thing of mine is threatened, I begin to get really, really anxious. And what does that tell you? I'm not trusting God like I thought I was trusting God. I say I trust God, but then when things get tough, my actions prove otherwise. And God is surfacing these things in our heart. And then at the same time, he's using it to shape us into the people he wants us to be. He's asking Philip, he wants to know, Philip, do you understand the divine economy or you only understand the human economy? Do we have enough money to buy bread? That's a marketplace picture, right? You go to the market, like Tyler had to go because Gary wasn't here and had to buy the communion bread, right? And he went to the store and he bought bread, okay? Jesus goes, where are we going to get the money to buy bread? Because that's how human, the human economy works. You want to feed all of these people? Thousands of people we're going to see? You're going to see feed all of these people? Where are you going to get the money to do that? Because that's how the human economy works. But he wants to, Philip to see that it isn't just a question of the human economy. He wants, Philip to, he wants to see if Philip realizes that there is another economy at work in the world, and that's the divine economy. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Now, some people think that Philip just is so dense he doesn't get it. That may be the case, but I think actually Philip is a little bit aware of what Jesus is trying to do. And he's saying, well, I don't have any idea. All I know is that this amount of money wouldn't even buy a bite for everyone here. Now, 200 denarii is likely about eight months of wages. Okay, eight months of wages. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're like really good financially. But for me, eight months of wages, that's a lot of money for me to try to lay out. I don't just have eight months of wages just hanging out. Dave Ramsey, one month of emergency expenses, right? Like this is a lot of money, eight months of wages just sitting there. Right? Maybe you have it in your home equity. Maybe you have it in savings, and if so, or, or uh, investment, good for you. But eight months of wage, that's a lot of money for you to lay out for a party, basically. And we're talking, I was talking um, the other day, and we're talking about buying Super Bowl tickets, and I, I'm a big Niners fan. right? But there's no way I have the money or the inclination to spend $5,000 a ticket. Right? You can buy a lot of things with $5,000, and I can see the game better on TV. So anyway, that's, I'm not against people. I have friends from back home who are flying to Miami and watching the game. Nothing against them, but that, that's how they're choosing to spend their money on this thing. And J- Philip said, well, if we had the money, this is how much we would need, right? And this is what it would purchase. We could spend all of this money, and every person would have like one bite of food. And I think what he's doing is he's throwing the question back to Jesus, like, I don't know. All I know is there's no way. We don't have this kind of money in our cash reserve. We don't have this kind of money. Our, our, our 501c3, whatever, doesn't have this in our bank account. And even if we did, it wouldn't be enough. And at this point, Andrew jumps in. Philip and Andrew, they're buds, right? Andrew says, Simon Peter's brother, there's a boy here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And so he's He's providing now, okay, 200 denarii is enough, and this is literally, this is what we have. We've got this kid who brought some, his lunch, right? 
we've got, th- we've got this kid who brought his lunch, and what are we going to do with it? You know, like, like my kids, because we're really good parents, what we like to do is we like to give them Lunchables. And so we buy Lunchables, right? And so he's got his little Lunchable there. Now, what you don't know, maybe, is that barley was actually uh, a, a grain that was more accessible for impoverished people. It was cheaper than wheat. And so when it says he had barley loaves, what it probably means is this kid is poor. Or he's at least not wealthy. He can't afford like this, the deluxe Lunchable with the built-in Capri Sun. He's got like the small Lunchable with just the crackers and the cheese, right? There's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew's saying, Philip's saying we don't have enough money. Andrew's saying we don't have enough resources. And this is, this is the canvas now for Jesus to do the miracle that he's going to do. And if we, I think we'll have to go ahead like three slides to where it's uh, verses 10 through 15. Uh, Jesus said, have the people sit down, all right? Now the stage is set. Now the stage is set. He's going to feed this crowd. The men d- numbered 5,000. So scholars estimate somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people total are there. Now it's interesting when it says, Jesus says, have the people sit down. It's literally make the men to sit. Make the men to sit. Um, and and what, what's interesting, if you remember from last week in John 5, that word make is a very important word in the context of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. Because Jesus is God, the Son, eternally begotten of the Father. And so the Father and the Son do the same things. They have the same ability. Jesus has the ability to do and make what only God can do and make because he is God the Son. Jesus' ability, though, is in really, really stark contrast to the people's ability. Because it says the people, or the the disciples' ability, because it says have or make the people sit down. Here's the extent of their ability. They can have the people sit. Now, that is a big deal. Like, if you ever tried to have kids sit down, like, it's not to say it's not nothing, but it's not a miracle, setting all these people down. He says, make them sit. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. This is the context of the limit of human ability, that Jesus is testing them so they will see the limits of their ability to participate in what God wants to do in the world. They can provide the canvas for the miracle. They can provide the context, but they can't do anything other than that. They make the people sit down, and then they sit with the people, and they watch. And it says, Jesus, verse 11, he took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. The, the, the emphasis throughout this, um, this story is not on the fish, it's on the loaves. And it's on the barley loaves because throughout the Bible we see the, the importance of bread in the life of the people of God. It was important in, important in that context, daily bread, you know, give us this day our daily bread. And so it's this metaphor for God's provision for his people. It's this metaphor that when Jesus is able to multiply bread, it means he's able to multiply provision. And and, and we're going to see that it actually gets connected with the Passover celebration, and then later as we move into Jesus' sacrifice, what's called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, because the word there, giving thanks, that's actually Eucharistos, Eucharist, he gave thanks. That's why some denominations call this the Eucharist or the, the Lord's Supper, because it's the giving of thanks when Jesus broke the bread. And notice it says, Jesus took the loaves, giving thanks, and he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. 
as much as they wanted. So tens of thousands of dollars could buy a bite for everyone in the human economy. But in God's economy, in the economy of Jesus, everyone gets more than they need with a miracle and simply an act of divine power. They ate so much, verse 12, they were full. And he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Now, that word leftovers may just, okay, that's what's left. But actually, the original narrative was written in Greek, and the, the word is literally translated the abundance. The abundance, the abounding. Like, like there's so much that Jesus provides that there's abundantly more left over that nobody even wants because they're so full. It's like we go to Tahoe sometimes with my family. That's like where I, I grew up in California. And so every other year we try to get out there and spend time in Tahoe. And there's this place on the 18th floor of the Harrah's Casino where they have an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. And I can tell you there comes a point where you have had so much, there's so much left, but you are so full you don't want anything else. And this is what's happening here. Jesus has filled these people so full that there's all of this left from these little loaves and fish. And it says, fill up what's, gather up what's left, the, the abundance, the leftovers. Notice it says, so that nothing is wasted. That nothing is wasted. And, so that, and, and literally, that nothing is lost. Now that might just seem like, okay, you know, Jesus wants to get the leftovers and all that. But in the context of the, of the book of John, there is something so powerful at work here. Jesus in John 6, 39 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me. John 17, 12, he says to the Father in prayer, I guarded them, my people, and not one of them is lost. Jesus doesn't waste Jesus doesn't lose. If you are his, you are his. He will, no, will not let you go. So they collected the pieces. They filled the 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Now, it's interesting. The 12, why, why is that number there, 12 baskets? Why is that important? Like, why does he mention 12 baskets? Well, I think it's because there's 12 disciples and there's 12 tribes of israel and so you have this metaphor in the gathering of the pieces by the disciples the disciples or who become the apostles are filling up the 12 tribes that that there is this unity to the purposes of god throughout time that that in 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 revelation 4 4 john sees this same John who wrote this, by the way, sees this vision of heaven, and it says, in heaven there was a throne, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones were elders, 24 elders dressed in white clothes. And most scholars believe that that 24 represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. In other words, the united people of God throughout time from Adam, Abraham, on the way down to the church. And so I think what we see here is Jesus giving a living parable of the apostles filling up the people of God with the Gentiles, that the 12 baskets are full of the leftover pieces. Those who were lost have now been found and they've been gathered in and made part of the people of God. 
when verse 14, the people saw the sign they, he had done. He said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So they, they have a vision of who he is, but they don't fully understand who he is because he is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. He's going to show the disciples in just a minute. And therefore, Jesus realized, I love this verse, it's so cool. They were about to force him to become king. He, they were about to come and take him by force to, be, to make him king. And he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In this season of everybody and their brother is, and mother is running for president, Jesus withdraws from political consideration because he's nobody's political pawn. You try to co-opt Jesus for your political agenda and he withdraws and leaves the scene. And he leaves and he's like, okay, that rest that I needed before that I didn't get because I saw these crowds and I had compassion on these crowds, I'm going to go get it. Now, I need some time. I need some space. And he goes. And he withdraws. And he won't let them make him king because he is not, his time hasn't come. He's not ready to be king yet. He has to go through the cross before he can get the crown. So this is the first question. Where do we get what we need? God provides what we need through his son. God provides what we need through his son. This is the second question, shorter question, if you're stressed out, all right, everyone's worrying, okay, Super Bowl's not till 6.30, I want to watch it as much as you all, probably more. Where does our help come from? Where does our help come from? When evening came, so this is miracle, I don't, you ever thrown, like, part, my, my wife does this to me all the time, she makes, she plans these big party events and things, and it's just, like, exhaust, I don't ever work harder than when I help Laura do a party for something, or, like, and, like, so she, and at the end of the day, you're just worn out, man, like, it's exhausting throwing parties, and the disciples are, like, we had to feed all these people. We had to do all this stuff. Jesus did all this miraculous stuff, and now we had to clean up after, and they're just done. And evening came, and they're like, where's Jesus? Jesus bounced back up into the mountains. We don't know where he is. We got to get home. It's starting to get dark. And so they went back down to the sea, to the Sea of Galilee. They'd been up kind of in the hills, and they going back down. And they got into a boat and started across the sea. They're like, we don't know where Jesus is. Clearly, he's able to do a lot of cool things, and he could probably take care of himself. Need some time. You know, he, he would often go and pray all night, and they're like, he's going to do his prayer thing, but we, we need to get home. I'm tired. So they get in the boat, and they head home. All of us have a boat, right? All of us have a boat. We have life in general is a boat. We're all in a boat, life and we're all in like specific situations at, diff at different times, right? And, and so like everyone's boat is different. Some are, some are wide boats. Some are narrow boats, right? Some are fast boats. Some are slow boats. Some are fancy boats. Some are plain boats. Some are stronger boats. Some are weaker boats. And God in his sovereign kindness has given us all a boat. He's given us a life to live and a destination to get to. And then he's also, in a more narrow sense, he's given us specific situations. A sort of, you know, we're in this boat, He's given us things, and when you take, when you get married, I love traditional wedding vows, because it encompasses the situations we face in life for better or worse, right? For richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, that, that sometimes life is great and sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes the boat is sailing on a smooth See, and sometimes the boat is rocking and you're not sure if you're going to make it. They get into the boat 
and started across the sea, back home to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. And then, then look what it says in verse 18. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. Now, if you read anything about this story, you'll, you'll read that this is true, that the Sea of Galilee is known to have these violent storms kind of come out of nowhere. So this is a natural phenomenon, but, but there's also something happening here because the, the, the word here, the, the, it actually says the sea was made to churn. And that was made by God, that this natural occurrence is actually a divine appointment for these disciples, that, that this is the, the second test for them. Just like Jesus tested Philip, where are we going to get the money to buy enough food for this group? Now he's testing all of them. God is testing all of them. What are you going to do when you're in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the lake, and the storm hits? Where is your help going to come from? The sea was being stirred up. And, and I just, I take such comfort in the sovereignty of God. Because there's nothing in your life that God is not superintending for your good. There's nothing in your life that is outside of his providential power. There's nothing in your life that's an accident. There's nothing in your life that's happening just because it's happening and life is random. There's nothing that is happening to you that is not superintended by God for your good and for his glory. It becomes the context for this great miracle, one of the greatest miracles in the whole book of John. Verse 19 after they had rode about three or four miles, so, so the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles across, and so three or four miles is about half, the point here is they're about halfway across. In other words, they're too far to go back, and they're too far to, they're not where they need to, they're right in the middle, right? Jesus, then, after they'd rode three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that they were afraid because they thought it was a ghost. And it says, they saw him, they were afraid, and he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, that just sounds, okay, interesting, but, but if you know what he's saying, it's actually something really profound that's happening here. If we look at this next slide. First, it says he was walking on the sea. That's a direct allusion to Job 9.8. Now, I know everyone knows Job 9.8 by heart, and it's like your favorite memory verse. But this is talking about Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, who alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea, who walks on the sea. So who walks on the sea? Only Yahweh, God, walks on the sea. But yet Jesus is walking on the sea. So that's the first thing that's happening. Here's the second thing that's happening. When he says, it is I, literally in the original Greek, which this is written in, it's ego eimi, I am. Not, so that could be a, just a way of saying, hey, it's me. But, but in context, when he simply says, I am, he's doing something much more profound than just identifying himself. He's identifying himself as the God of the Old Testament. Because if you know anything about the Bible, you know the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses following the sheep, right? And he comes to the sheep. 
and follows. He finds this bush. The bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. And God speaks to him out of the bush, and he says, go get my people out of Egypt. And he says, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. Look at this verse here. Oh, next one, and then I'll go back to this. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am, that is ego ami, I am. And so what Jesus is doing in walking on the water, he is identifying his divine identity, saying, I am the God who spoke to Moses. I am the God who called Abraham. I am the God who spoke creation into existence. I am Yahweh, God, Elohim, Most High. I am God walking on the sea right in front of you. Uh, If you go back to the slide there, I put them out of order. Um, So these statements in the Gospel of John are really famous. Maybe you've studied them. Actually, when we were in the launch team phase of our church a couple years ago, we studied the, the I am statements, just them, not the whole book of John. And, uh, and so there's a bunch of these metaphorical I am statements. One is in chapter six, we'll see, we'll see next time. Um, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, way, truth, and life. I'm the true vine. Seven of them, right? Seven is not an accident. Number of fullness. Jesus is the fullness of God's provision. And, and But then there are also these number of times where Jesus says, absolutely, I am, without any qualifier, without any predicate, without anything else, just I am. And there he identifies that he is not just doing things that are miraculous, but he is actually God himself in front of them and with them. He is the great I am. Jesus is God who provides for and protects his people. If you go to the next slide. Where does our help, oh, no, back. Uh, Where does our help come from? Where does our help come from? Some of you are just thinking about that last slide you saw. What's he going to be talking about? Don't worry, we'll get there. Where does our help come from? It comes from God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son. Where, does our, where do we get what we need? From God, through the Father, through Jesus. Where does our help come from? From God, through Jesus. Verse 21 says, And the disciples recognized him and received him into their boat. I don't know what your boat is. The question is what you recognize Jesus in your boat and receive him into your boat. I was doing some research this week on the, for this sermon, and I d- discovered a, an essay about this rare neurological disorder called prosopagnosia, also known as face blindness. I don't know if anyone's heard of this. It's very rare. So the way our brains work is that um, we are born with an innate ability to photographically remember faces. That's why when I see your face, I know who you are. If you asked me to explain your face, I couldn't explain it, I couldn't draw it, but I know it when I see it instantaneously. And we're, 
scientists have done a ton of research and they've shown this is something our brains are wired to do from before birth. And, and when we're born from a very early age, we can recognize faces photographically immediately. And we're not like this. Our brains don't work like this for anything else. And in this essay, they talk about, like, if I put, like, six rocks in front of you, you wouldn't remember the rocks. But if I put six faces in front of you, you'd remember the faces. Because your brain, that's just how God made your brain to work. Well, face blindness is this neurological disorder that the brain is not able to remember faces. So it's the story of this, this, this woman who is a writer, and she... Um, has these situations where like her best friend will come sit next to her at the coffee shop and she won't recognize her like where she's been at the, at the grocery store and doesn't recognize her own husband it's just like wow it's like this powerful story and i just think it is just a perfect example of the spiritual disorder that every one of us is born with that we can't see the glory of god in the face of jesus christ we don't see it they didn't see it right in front of them. We don't see it when it's staring us in the face. We don't see who Jesus really is. We don't recognize him. This neurological disorder doesn't have a cure, and so they have these ways to train people to recognize people um, that, and like remember certain characteristics that will help them uh, recognize faces um, more consistently. But unlike face blindness in this this rare neurological disorder there is a cure for our spiritual face blindness and that is jesus comes to us on the sea and next to our boat says i am don't be afraid i am don't be afraid and with that word he can remove the blindness and he can give us sight of who he truly is and just like these these People with this, this disorder have to train and consistently train themselves to recognize faces. God has given us means to train ourselves to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to recognize that he is the God who provides for and protects us. And I think if you're, if you're looking for two ways to recognize Jesus and receive him into your boat, based on this text, here are two things. Here are two things. Here's the first one. Give money away. Give money away. It's very simple. The most difficult thing to trust God with is with our provision financially. It just th- and so the way to show God that you trust him is by trusting him when you give things away. And so this is what this means. It means you need to give enough away that it makes you a little worried. Okay? So if you're giving enough away that's like it's just comfortable it's like a skimming off the top you know then then it doesn't really i mean it's believe me whoever is receiving that donation will appreciate it but it doesn't do you much spiritual good when you give enough money away sacrificially this is why god puts this ground floor of giving at 10 percent. you begin to see oh my goodness this is like a mortgage payment or a car payment or whatever it is coming out of my check, out of my income, out of my resources every single month, and I begin to see, God, I'm trusting that you're going to provide and you're going to bless and you're going to give me and make up for what I'm giving to you. And so 
I'm not saying this as a way to guilt you into giving. I'm just saying this as a normal implication of the text that if you want to grow in trust of Jesus, give sacrificially, financially. And I promise you, it will be uncomfortable and it will also be worth it. It will be uncomfortable and it will also be worth it. And here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. Give your fear to Jesus. Give your fear to Jesus. The first one goes to provision. God's going to provide for you. He, he, you know that cliche, you can't outgive God, is a cliche for a reason, and that's because it's true. The first one goes to provision. The second one goes to protection. Give your fear to Jesus. And maybe you're f- afraid about money, but maybe you're afraid about something else. Maybe you're afraid about your health, afraid about your kids, you're afraid about your grandkids, you're afraid about the election, you're afraid about whatever. Get, like, f- consciously give that to Jesus consistently. In the midst of the rocking waves in your boat on the sea, give that to Jesus. And say, Jesus, I am really, afraid. Just, and, and recognize in that moment, just say, Jesus, I am scared to death. If I'm honest, I'm afraid, and I need you to show up. And I'm giving this fear, I'm giving this to you. I'm worried that this, I'm worried that that. Give that fear to Jesus, and what he will do is he will come alongside, and he will say, I am. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you for giving us your son, sending your eternal son to become a human being so that he might live a sinless life, might die a sinner's death, might be buried and raised from the dead so that we would turn from our sin and trust in him and be forgiven our sin and given eternal life. And so, Lord, for those here today who have never taken that step and turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, I pray that they would do that right now. And if that's you, just simply tell God in your own words that you're going to turn away from your own way of life, your sinful way of life, your selfish way of life, and you're going to turn to Him. And you can mark that on that connection card I mentioned. You can drop that in the offering box. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that decision. If you are a follower of Jesus, the call to you is really the same. It's just for you, it's not the first time. It's the 15,000th time. Turn from your sin and trust in the God who Jesus is, in his provision and his protection. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together.